And here we go, the rest of the Ds. I hope it works. If you like what I'm doing, shoot me a like, shoot me a share. Let other people know about it. Don't forget to subscribe. And don't forget my membership videos. They will help you. Sunday nights are all about learning. If you're a corporation and you own common stock of a company or preferred and you're getting dividends, you will only pay tax on 50% of it, okay? So that's a dividend exclusion rule. If you if you are a corporation and you own 20% or less of, the, I guess, under 20, I, I don't know the number. You can look it up. Under 20%. You don't. You only pay tax on fifty percent of the dividend, which is great. So you get a hundred thousand dollar dividend. Fifty of it comes off the table. You only pay tax on the fifty. Great reason for cross ownership. If you own more than twenty five percent, twenty five percent, twenty percent of the company, then you only pay tax on thirty five percent, even more. And I think if you're over ninety percent, I think there's another number where it even goes even higher, but not testable. They're not going to do the numbers. Just know that corporations benefit greatly from buying from buying stocks that pay dividends. Dividends per share is really just how much dividends we get per share. If you look on a stock, you're going to look, if you ever look on TD or Schwab, wherever you have an account, and you look, it says dividends per share. That's how much you're getting paid per share. So let's say we have a million dollars, we're paying out a million dollars. We have 500,000 shares. We're paying out a million dollars in dividends. It's $2 a share. So easy, not a big deal. Now the dividend payout ratio, the dividend payout ratio is basically measuring how much we're paying in dividends divided by what we make, okay? So basically, you're going to do the dividends divided by earnings per share. So it's the annual per share dividend divided by the earnings per share. Or you could take the entire dividends, what they pay, and divide it by the value of the company, okay? The, the uh, equity. You can do that. The, the one you're going to get is the dividend pay ratio is the per share dividend divided by the earnings per share. Now, what's a drip? I'm a drip. People are drips. Okay. Um, a drip is a dividend reinvestment program. So what happens is you can go, well, they have it now. Most of the broker dealers let it happen, but you, you used to be the way you would, you would buy shares with the company directly and they would set up a drip, a DRP, but it's a dividend reinvestment program. What happens is as they pay dividends, they automatically reinvest the dividends for you. And you're like, well, why do I care? One, no commissions which a lot of places don't do anyway. But two, you get partial shares. So if you want to, if you want to, I don't even know, if you get a $5 dividend and it's a $100 stock, you'll get 5% of the shares. You can't do that on your own. The, the broker dealers do it now. A lot of them do. Schwab does. And I think TD does now. A couple of them do. Well, a lot. Um, but the companies used to let you reinvest. So the thing is, if you get that money, so you're getting the cash and then it's being reinvested automatically, it's considered you got the money. So you're going to get the share, get the money. You're not going to see it. It's going to get the cash and it's going to automatically buy a percentage or a portion of the new shares, fractional. And that is taxable to you, even though it's reinvested. But where it isn't, see, that's the one way where they get the cash. The other one is where they just distribute the extra fractional shares to you. So the drip can go one of two ways. Either you get the cash. Well, they're paying you cash and you buy dividends. You don't get to keep the money, but you are taxed on it. The other way is they just give you the stock the extra stock that your dividend would have gotten, then that one isn't that isn't taxable up until you sell it, because you're just you're just getting more shares yet, and that's not a taxable event. Kind of like how a stock dividend is not taxable in the moment, but a cash dividend is. Now, dividend yield is basically the same as current yield. Okay, dividend yield and current yield are the same thing. You take the annual AMP, right? AMP, annual over market price. So you're going to take the annual dividend. And divide it by the market price. Again, the annual dividend and divide it by the market price. Current yield. What's dollar cost averaging? Okay. So dollar cost averaging 
is when you invest the same amount of money every time period. So what happens is you get a lower cost per share. It's the only way to kind of like beat market timing. So because me, if I buy stocks, I'll buy Tesla at the high and sell it at its low. It's literally my life. Okay. So that's timing risk. Dollar cost averaging takes away timing risk. Let's see if we can do it. Okay, so let's say you're going to invest $1,000 every month. And this is a really volatile stock, but it is what it is. You can invest 1000 a month each month. This is dollar cost averaging, same amount every time. Okay, so if you buy a th put $1,000 at $50 a share, you're going to buy 20 shares. $1,000 at $20 a share, 50, on and on and on. So this is how many shares you're going to buy, and let's do the average. So we're going to add them up. So we spent four grand. We know that. Okay, so four thousand dollars. That's what we spent. We know that because it's four years, four months, or whatever it is at thousand each. So we now this for seventy, eighty, one hundred eighty shares. So that's one hundred eighty shares you bought. So we do the little calculation, come up with our average price, one thousand divided by one eighty equals. That's going to be. So that works out to be four thousand divided by one hundred eighty works out to be twenty two dollars and twenty two cents a share. So that's our average, 22.22, okay? Because we bought a lot of shares down here and all that. Okay, so now, that, that's our average cost. But if we did this the other way where we said, okay, what's the average price of the stock? Okay, so if you just set the average price of the stock over that same time, it's going to be 50 plus 20 plus 100 plus 10, $10. That's going to give us 180, 180 divided by four weeks. That's going to give us $45, okay? So our, uh, the average price of the stock is 45 but because we did dollar cost average and we came in a lot lower, less than half. Because what happens is when it's lower, you're loading up. And when it's higher, you're buying less, okay? Not on purpose. It's just you're putting in 1000 each time. And by just by doing that, you have better timing. You should have a lower price. Your cost, this, your cost should be lower than the average price. And it, in this case, it's a lot. Well, it's also a very volatile stock. I mean- this is kind of crazy that we can go this back, but I wanted to be extreme. Okay, so let's talk about the donor versus the, the giftee, right? So you're allowed to give up to $16,000, whatever the number is. I think it's 16. It keeps changing every year, right? You can give $16,000 a year to as many people as you want, and that's gift tax exclusion. As long as you give that or less, you can give it to 30 people or 100 people, but you can't give it to the same person more than once until the next year. If you do that, it's not taxable to the recipient. If you give more than that, say you give 20 grand and you don't use the uh, the lifetime gift exclusion, which allows you to give a shitload of money, um, you, will, you, the donor, will have to pay taxes on the increased amount, on the amount above 16 grand. So if I give you 17,000, I, I, the donor, have to pay taxes on the $1,000. Okay. okay, duration. Duration is basically bond sensitivity, right? So it's, ha it's just think it's, interest rate risk or volatility. And just remember the long-term bonds have long duration, which kind of works, but that's not what it means really, right? So long-term bonds have more bond volatility, so they have more duration. Longer duration means more volatile. So long and low, baby, long and low. Long-term bonds and low coupon bonds have the most volatility, the most duration. It's kind of like when you're gonna get your money back, okay? Um, they express it in years, but I wouldn't worry about it. I just know that long duration, they're not gonna make you do the math on it, just know that long duration means it is very volatile. On to the E's, E. Okay, we got E. So first of all, earned income. What the hell is earned income? Earned income is what you actually earn. Yeah, of course, Ken, don't be an idiot. Earned income is like salaries, commissions, wages, bonuses, 
royalties. You need earned income to put it in an IRA. So if you have passive income, like from a limited partnership or investment income from dividends and trust fund baby shit, you can't open it up. You can open an IRA, but you can't put anything in it. You have to have earned income. My example is I have a friend who's a CEO of a broker dealer. And what happens is, is he, um, he, it's an LLC. Now he changed it. He's now he's CEO and he gets, a, he gave himself a paycheck, but he goes, I can't put anything in my IRA. He said, because I have no earned income. Everything's passive LLC income. So he changed it. He, he pays himself like 10 grand a year, a year, and just in salary on top of his partnership. So he can put money in an IRA. He has other options, but he really wanted an IRA personal that was outside of his uh, business. So that's earned income. Earned income is what you earn from doing work. Salaries, commissions, wages, royalties, bonuses. Earnings momentum. That's like your earnings. Your earnings per share are rising. Like it goes to like, one year it's 10%, then 12, then 15, then 17. It's increasing. So if your earnings per share is growing by 10% one year and then 13% the next year and then 15% and then 18%, that's earnings momentum and that's a good thing. So if it stays flat, it says flat. What's earnings per share? So this is easy, right? Okay. Earnings per share. Look, think about this. We're kind of idiots, right? So we are idiots. So they the, all these formulas, a lot of the formulas actually have the name of what it is in there, earnings per share. It's earnings divided by shares. Now it's gonna be your net earnings. So it's earnings, God forbid they do it, earnings, you minus anything you pay to the dividends. Cause if you wanna think about it, it's earnings available to common per share. Earnings available to common per share. So it's earnings minus the preferred dividend divided by the number of outstanding shares. Outstanding, not, not authorized, not issued, outstanding shares, which is issued Minus the treasury, lots of math, but they're going to give you a lot of this stuff. They're not going to make you do eight steps. So again, earnings per share. It's the amount of earnings divided by the sh outstanding shares. If they throw in the preferred dividend, just subtract it out and then do it. What's effective date? Effective date is the day that your registration becomes effective. So if you register a security, usually around the 20th day, the SEC or the administrator, that's not 20 days, but the SEC gives you the effective date. The administrator says, oh, you're effective. Remember, they're not approving it. They're not endorsing it. They're not saying, hey, you're good. They're not ascertaining the merits of the security or the person selling it. They're basically saying, hey, you filled out the paperwork. You're not a felon and you paid the fee. You're good to go. You didn't lie on the on the application or we don't see any lies. They're not endorsing you or passing on it, anything. But they are passing on it. They're just saying, hey, you filled out the paperwork. We couldn't say anything bad. You, you can sell your shit. We'll come after you later if we find out you lied. Okay, so we have marginal tax rate and effective tax rate. So marginal is your top tax bracket, right? So marginal is like, if so if you, we do brackets here in this country. So if you're making like 50 grand a year, okay? You're actually paying like two to two or three different brackets. So I'm just showing you. Okay, so let's say you make 50 grand. Your marginal tax bracket, let's see. So your marginal tax bracket is your top tax bracket. I know we're in the ease, but it kind of works with effective. So you're in the, right now, anything up to 11 grand is 10, anything up to four. So let's walk it this way. The first 11 grand you make is taxed at 10%. The next, whatever that 33,000 you make is taxed at 12%. And anything above 44 grand up to 95,000 is taxed at 22%. Where you fall in your top tax bracket, that's your marginal, okay? That's the one you use to calculate what your tax after tax yield is and all that. Because any money you make is on top of the 50. So if you make 50 grand, you're going to pay 10% on the first 11, 12% up to 44, and then you're going to pay 22% on 6K. So let's figure this out. So it's 6K, right? 
And remember, I, I I rounded the 95 and the 40. There's like dollar amounts in between them, but it's about right. So let's say, so you're going to be 6K is going to be at 22%. 34, 33%, 33K is going to be at 12%. And 11K is going to be at 10%. So I'm going to pause so we can do it, so we don't waste too much of your time, because I'm already nailing you for hours on this one. Okay, so we already know that your marginal tax bracket is your top tax bracket of 22. You're not paying 22 in the whole 50 or anything, even though you're in that bracket. So the first 11 grand you make is 10%. That's going to be $1,100. The next thirty, the next thirty-three thousand you make. I hope I did the math right. Is going to be thirty-nine sixty, twelve percent of that. And then the amount above forty-four is six grand. You're going to pay twenty-two percent of that. So you're going to pay thirteen hundred, thirty-nine sixty, and eleven hundred. That's sixty-three eighty in total taxes. If you make fifty grand, you're going to pay sixty-three eighty in total taxes, which is your effective tax rate of twelve point seven percent. That's this. That's the blend of all this. This is not. This is when you do calculation. For ta after tax yield, you're going to use the marginal, not the effective, because it doesn't work. Because remember, anything over 50, anything you make over 50 will be taxed at this higher rate. So this, it'll go up quicker. Okay. So that's marginal versus effective tax bracket. Efficient market theory. So let's talk about that. So efficient market theory, efficient market hypothesis theory is the belief that the market is efficient. What does that mean? The efficient market theory believes that the market is efficient and there are no inefficiencies because traders try to find inefficiencies. Active traders try to find inefficiencies like a stock is undervalued or something like that. Efficient market theory does not believe in it. So there are three types of efficient market theory, three theories. One is weak, some is strong and strong. The way I try to remember it is that weak is like, yeah, we sort of believe in it, but there are exceptions. Semi strong is we mostly believe in it, but there is one way. And then strong believes it is absolutely efficient. You can't beat the market. I think they're wrong, but let's start. Weak believes that all historical prices are built in. And the only way to really beat the market is to do fundamental analysis. All of them believe technical doesn't work. Okay. All of them believe technical, technical does not work. Okay. They believe so only weak believes that you can gain an advantage, maybe by doing fundamental and finding like a diamond in the rough, looking at the balance sheets and finding an undervalued stock and buying it. Hopefully it'll catch up. That's weak. Semi-strong, they're pretty good believers. They believe they believe all news is built into the price. So efficient market theory, semi-strong believes that all news is built into the price. Public news. So any kind of private information that's unknown or whatever. Once it's published, the stock will quickly go to the price that reflects that new news. So there's two ways. One, if you are in possession of inside information or private info, maybe not even like, so yeah, let's say inside information, private, and you have that, you can actually beat the market. Or if you have a system that can actually read the market as it comes out faster than everyone else, bigger, faster, stronger, right? Then you might be able to capture it before it moves. Like, oh, when you saw like, oh, the Google... If you, as soon as you saw Google had an antitrust thing against them, maybe you go, okay, let the drop and then we buy it. Or you go, shell short my stock now because it's going to drop. If you can make reactions better than everyone else or faster, then you can do it. That's semi-strong. Strong believes that, don't even try. Strong believes that people trade on insider private information. It's built into the price and the market is efficient. That the actual market reflects all public and private information. So again, weak it's just every, all the prices, all historical prices are built in already, and you can only maybe beat the market with fundamental. 
semi-strong, believes that all public knowledge is built into the price, but any private information that comes out will move the price. And then strong believes that all public and private information is built in. So even when new news comes out, it shouldn't really affect it that much because it's already built into the price. That's efficient market theory. Okay, being enjoined or injunction. So let's say I'm an administrator and I think you're you're fucking up. You're doing some bad shit. So I'm going to issue a cease and desist. And you go, ah, Ken, you're an idiot. I'm not going to listen to me. I really don't have a bite other than to maybe revoke your license and you know suspend you. But I can't really do anything if you keep doing it. So I'm going to go, oh, my God, I can't do this. So I will say, this jerk is not listening to me. I'll go, as the administrator, I'll go running to the court and go, please, can you help me? And they will issue an injunction. An injunction is being enjoined. Only a court can do an injunction. We can ask the court to do it, but the court has to do it. Just like arresting and putting for criminal, it only is the court. An injunction has legal bite behind it. If you ignore it, you have legal consequences. Okay, a couple of things. I think we talked about adoption, but so... And I think I mentioned entangled. So if you see a third, if you see a testimony or something or some some sort of like I love Ken Finn in post somewhere on the third on the third on a third party website, and I go, hey, look at that, look at that thing. They love me. Or if every time somebody talks about my name, I point to that and I repost it or something like that because I'm a narcissistic bastard, right? So if I do that, okay, that is called adopting. I am adopting their thing. I'm saying, hey, and that means I have to follow the rules, but. If I'm behind the scenes helping them write it, that's entanglement, okay? And that's a little gray area, okay? That's basically, I have participated in the development of content on a third-party site in which basically that's what I'm doing. I'm So adoption is, hey, somebody liked me. I'm going to repost to it, relink it, whatever it is. If it's entanglement, that means I was involved in writing it, maybe behind the scenes, which not would not be good. ESG, environmental social government, is basically looking at standards of how they handle the environment, social, and, and all governance. It's like kind of like, it's fine. It's like woke investing, okay? Think of it that way. I'm not saying good or bad. I'm just saying that's the easy way to remember it. Equity, ownership in a company. That's so much own. Like even on a margin account, it's what it's worth minus what you owe, right? If you have market value of 50 grand and you have a debit balance of 20, you have 30 grand in equity, okay? Equity is considered ownership. The only way you have equity is if you buy common stock, or preferreds in a company, equity in a company. Equity financing is basically issuing common or preferred stocks to get money to pay for shit, as opposed to debt financing, which is issuing bonds. So there's equity financing issuing common and preferred, giving up ownership, versus debt financing, Kevin O'Leary, and issuing debt to finance your shit. So, so, so a euro dollar is US currency in a farm bank. That sounds so stupid, right? But it, what it is is like, say you're going to do a deal in. I say Europe, it's not a country, in um, England, okay? You're going to do a deal in England and they want to be paid in dollars because why wouldn't you? That Where the reserve currency, where the shit, all that crap. So if you want to do a deal in a foreign currency, in a foreign country, you're going to take your dollars and deposit them in the, the bank the bank of Gringotts, see if you get that reference. And then you say, I don't change it into your stupid pound, keep it in dollars. That's a euro dollar, okay? Your dollar is U.S. currency, deposited in a foreign bank and left as U.S. currency. Then we have euro dollar bonds. Euro dollar bonds are bonds issued by U.S. companies or, or so, and they're issued in another country, but they pay in U.S. currency. So it's like Apple issuing a bond in London, but it pays in dollars. We can't buy on it. It has to be foreigners, re foreign residents. Um, there's loopholes to that, but we'll leave it at that. So if so many people in London can buy an Apple bond, but it pays in dollars. They have currency risk.
Listed securities exchange listed, they just trade on the exchange. They're the big boys. They're the biggest of the companies. Are They're not supposed to be say you're safer, but they're they're much more liquid. They're, they have a lot more people ripping them apart and looking at them. They are, in a sense, safer. I mean, as far as disclosures go, because everyone's looking at them and trying to find any little mistake. As opposed to unlisted securities over the counter, which are a little riskier. What's an exchange privilege? That allows you to move, like say Fidelity, you have account, say you have a large cap at Fidelity. And you, you know what? I want to get into the mid cap. The exchange privilege is allowing them, is allowing you, the investor, to move some of your shares or all of them from the large cap to the mid cap without charging a sales charge. But if you do that and you sell it and you sold the large cap for more than you bought it, you're going to pay taxes on that. Capital gains, whether it's long term or short term. So remember something everything about a mutual fund is taxable. Everything about a mutual fund is taxable. Even if you get a dividend and you reinvest it, you're paying taxes on that shit. An ETF. An ETF is a packaged product like this, okay? Okay? They put a bunch of securities in it, and it trades on the exchange. This trades on the exchange. It's an ETF, okay? We should know what this is. So it's an ETF. is a packaged product. It's an it's like a, it's a investment company. It's under the Investment Company Act of 40. But here's the differences, okay? So like a mutual fund is actively traded. You can only see the top five holdings, and maybe at the end of the quarter you can see. The ETF is not actively managed. They kind of rebalance it. So they set a certain percent of percentages of what they have in the fund, and you know what they are pretty much down to the percentage point. Now, it may change over time because stocks move, right? But at the end of every quarter, at the end of every quarter, they rebalance it. So they're not actively managing. They're not trying to beat the market. They're just indexing. So, so what it is is you don't have an active manager, so the fees are lower, okay? So the fees are a lot lower because there's, an, you're, there's less stuff going on, less trading. You don't have to pay some arrogant manager where he or she lives in Connecticut or Hamptons and charges a lot of money. You just have a bit passive manager just every every quarter rebalancing it to bring everything back. So let's say Apple goes crazy one, one quarter and it goes up faster than everyone else. Its percentage of the fund might get be bigger than it should be. So they'll sell some of the Apple and buy the other securities to bring it back into not parity, but into the original percentage. Okay. What's an executor? An executor of an estate. It's basically the person who's controlling their job. It is, is to handle an estate. What is a state? That means somebody died. Okay. Somebody died and you have somebody watching over the will and distributing the money and making sure they have a fiduciary responsibility to do what's right for everyone. Okay. They can't just be willy nilly do what they want. They have rules that they have to follow in the will. They have to follow them in detail. What's an exempt reporting advisor? An exempt reporting advisor is an advisor that, depending on who they're invest, who their who their customers are, I guess, who they're advising, they may not have to register with the SEC, but they will have to report their financials. So if you're a private fund advisor, which is basically hedge fund advisor, you don't have to register with the SEC until you get over 150 million, then you do. Okay. Or if you're a venture capitalist advisor, then it doesn't matter how much you have. You'll never have to register, but both do have to report their financials. Now, that, that means you're exempt on the state level and all that. But here's the thing. If you want an exemption, you have to be eligible to register. What I mean by that is that if this private fund advisor has its statutory disqualification, something like that, that would bar it from registering, it can't be exempt. So if you want to be exempt from registering in a state, you had better be clean because if you are you have to be eligible to register because I've had people come to me. Hey, I, I want to um, do business in a state and I just I don't want to have an office or anything. So I don't want to register. So I don't have to get my licenses. No, you like to be an exempt advisor or a rep. You got to register somewhere. The only one these two don't because of a special exemption, because 
But again, if they go over 150 million, the private fund advisor does have to register with the SEC. Their idea is that, look, if you're advising a venture capitalist fund or a, or a hedge fund or a private fund, you're not really dealing with retail. You're dealing with experts and hopefully experts that know what they're doing and they can defend themselves. Okay, exempt security versus an exempt transaction. This is big. Exempt security is a security that will be exempt. Any federal government, U.S. or foreign, any muni, U.S. or Canada, the rest of them don't. Anything on an exchange, banks, utilities, insurance companies, commercial paper, mutual funds, investment companies, all these things are exempt. Reg D, 506C, these are all exempt. The actual security is exempt. This I'm talking state level, okay? On the federal level, it's a different list. But again, an exempt security means it never has to register. At the state level, okay? Exempt security means it does not have to register ever because the issuer is exempt or the security is or whatever it is. As opposed to an exempt transaction. An exempt transaction is a security that would normally have to register. Like if I went public, I would have to register because it's a shitty tutoring company, right? But if there are ways that people can buy my shares without me having to register. So let's say I'm in Jersey. I register in Jersey under qualification. We know that, right? One state only. If somebody in New York wants to buy shares, not from me, usually not from the issuer, but wants to buy shares from someone else, there are exemptions available to for the transaction to be exempt. Unsolicited non-issuer, selling to institutions, private placements, which is not a right D, okay? It's up to 10 retail and as many institutions as you want. Selling to my employees, selling to an underwriter, all pre-organization certificate. Um, if someone dies and has my shares and they have the executor, we just went over that, has to sell the shares to make everyone happy. Or if there's bankruptcy, they, the the sheriff or the trustee has to sell the shares to pay off the creditors. Those are all, or if a pledgee, like say somebody borrows money and uses my shares as collateral, really fucking stupid. But say they do, then um, then if they if I, they default and they sell the shares, then that's going to be an exempt transaction too. Basically, it's saying exempt security never has to register. An exempt transaction is for a security that would normally have to register. But because of the way we're doing it, we don't have to. Okay, exercise price and strike price mean the same thing. They will use both strike price and exercise price. So we have the strike price is like if it's buying, if it's a call, it's where they have the right to buy. And if it's a put, it's where they have the right to sell. That's all it is. Strike price and exercise price are the same damn thing. They may use either word. Okay, expense ratio is how much it costs. You won't have to do the math. You might have to do NAV math, but you don't have to do... Um, expense ratio expense ratio is how much it costs to run the fund as a percentage of what you have okay basically it's taking all the net at it's taking all the the expenses dividing it by the funds and that's the expense ratio and we want it as low as possible obviously so like etfs or index funds uits even have very low expense ratios where mutual funds and closed-end funds that are actively managed have higher ones because they're trading and they're doing stuff okay so that's the ease Okay, new shirt. You can see it's a little grown in a little bit. It's been a few days. There's a long project for me. So now we're starting with the F word. Not my F word, the letter F. I feel like I'm Sesame Street. This, this video is sponsored by the letter F. Okay. I'll, so again, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put the timestamp for the letter it starts, and then you guys can figure it out. I'll try to probably have someone make a list of what the order is. You can watch it. But eh, you got to put a little, put maybe 40 minutes into to find a letter. Okay. So face value, face value is like of a bond, right? Par value of a bond. It could be 1,000, 5,000, 10,000, 100,000, whatever the face value is, it's that's the that's like par value, okay? We know on the bonds for calculations, we're gonna use thousand, but there are bonds that are 5,000, 
10,000, 50,000, 100,000 par. So it's whatever they tell you, just trust that they tell you. Also, remember, if you see 100 M, that's not 100 million, it's 100,000. Use Latin here, M, X, cum, all that stuff. Okay. Federal covered advisor. Now, a federal covered advisor is basically an advisor absolutely set up by NISMIA that is registered with the SEC. Okay. So a federal covered advisor, there's more to it. I have videos on that. But a federal covered advisor is an advisor that's registered with the SEC. One of them is going to be like a, um, that gives advice only on governments, on treasuries. Okay. Another one is if they give advice to mutual funds, boom, or investment companies, they're in federal covered. Or if they have more than a hundred million, they can register with the SEC under management. And if they have over 110 million, they have to register with the SEC. Those are all federal covered. I'm sure I missed a one or two, but that's what a federal, in general, a federal covered advisor is registered with the SEC under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. Okay, federal covered securities. These are securities that are registered with the SEC. There's only a few of them. Well, there's not a few of them, but they start with, like if you buy a muni in your own state, right? Well, that's not federally covered. It's exempt, but it's not federally covered. Okay, so federal covered securities, are those gonna be registered with the SEC under certain exemptions where they might have to notice file in the state? So we have anything on an exchange, national exchange. Mutual funds, Reg D five hundred six C, and anything sold to qualified purchasers, which is purchasers with more than five million. Those are all federal covered, and they pretty much have to notice file if they're selling shares in the state. Doesn't mean they have to register; they just have to notice file. Okay, so the insurances, right? So this FDIC and CIPIC. So F and S were putting together. They, if you have a like my grandson can't say F yet, so he'd say SDIC and and say CIPIC. FDIC is a Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. They are protecting if banks, you're protecting your deposits, if banks, banks, not broker dealers, if a bank fails, goes out of business, they'll give you back your money. CIPIC, I think it's 250. CIPIC is for your broker dealers, Securities Investor Protection Corporation. And they kind of regulate the, uh, the broker dealers. So the broker dealers, because you have to file with them and shit like that. If a broker dealer fails, your accounts are covered up to 500 grand, of which, not in addition to, of which 250 can be cashed. So if you have 500,000 in your account and 300 is cash, they're going to only cover 250 in the cash and then whatever the rest, the 200 in securities. And securities, not futures, not forwards, not commodities, securities. So SIPIC covers securities and it's for uh, accounts that are not in, not street name. Oh, yeah, street name. Sorry about that. That are in street name, which means you don't actually, you own them. But the broker dealer kind of owns them. But if in your indirect name or like UPMA or UGMA accounts, they're not covered. Now, that sounds cruel. But the point is, if you own shares of IBM in street name, that means actually your broker dealer, say Schwab, owns them and you're the beneficial owner. So if, the, if Schwab goes out of business, then IBM will go, I don't know who you are. We see Schwab owns it, not you. So SIPIC will pay you back. But if you have the shares in your own name under that system, DRS, direct registration system, where they're in your name and the broker day goes bankrupt, you don't care. You just call up IBM and go, look, my shares are held at, at Schwab. They're out of business. Can you just send me new certificates? And the transfer agent will do that because they know you. They recognize you. And that's why UPMA, UGMA, and direct registration system accounts like in your own name will not be covered because they don't need to. Fed funds is the amount that banks and, and lending institutions have greater than what they need. So if they need 10% of, if they need 10% of their net deposits in cash, anything they have over that is federal funds and it can be withdrawn immediately. 
Fed funds rate is is the rate that banks lend to each other. Again, Fed funds rate is the is the rate that the banks lend to each other. Federal Home Loan Bank is a is a government lending institution for savings and loan institutions. Freddie Mac, Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, they're the ones who basically promotes um they handle so so they have Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, which is known as Freddie Mac. Freddie Mac is a corporation, government-sponsored entity. It's kind of government-y, right? And they handle the whole mortgage-backed securities and the secondary market of it. Federal Intermediate Credit Bank is basically banks that provide short-term uh, financing to farmers. Here's my thing. These ones, the the Federal Intermediate Credit Bank, I just it's just a fucking mental block. I don't remember them at all. I, I Seriously, I'll read this. And then I'll move on, and then I'll never remember it again. It's crazy. Fannie Mae does the same thing as Ginnie Mae, just a couple different things. Um, Federal Open Market Committee, that's where they, basically, that's the committee that decides, are we going to buy treasuries? Are we going to sell treasuries? It's basically the Federal Reserve. So remember, FOMC is the Open Market Ops. That's going to be, FOMC is a department of the Federal Reserve Board. They decide whether they're going to buy or sell tre treasuries. And then the Federal Reserve Board, it's a corrupt, I mean, bank. It's, a, it's like our central bank. And they're the ones who handle the monetary policy. They're, they have four tools, D-O-R-M, discount rate, open market ops, reserve, and margin. So they set right T. They set right T. That's the money between broker dealers and customers. Um, <clears throat> they do the reserve requirement, which is what banks have to have. They never touch those two. They do the open market ops, buying and selling treasuries to either tighten or loosen. And then they do the discount rate, which is the rate that they lend to banks. Remember, Fed funds rate is bank-to-bank -bank overnight lending. Discount rate is the rate that the Federal Reserve lends to banks for overnight lending or up to 30 days. We know that because I've already talked about that. Okay, what's a fiduciary? A fiduciary is basically your job is to manage assets for another person, and you have to do them for the person's benefit. So IAs, trustees, IARs, trustees, IAs, have a guardians, custodians have a fiduciary obligation to do what's best for the client or the beneficiary. If you're an executive of a will, you have to do what's best for the beneficiaries or the people being really sad someone died. And we talked about orders. Okay, then there's, there's prospectuses, right? There's final or statutory prospectus. That's the, that's the one that gets issued when you buy it, right? Before the effective day, I think we talked about this, you have the preliminary prospectus as known as the red herring. Um, <clears throat> once it's effective, once you're effective, we're going to... Um, we're going to start sending out the final or statutory prospectus. What's the difference between the two? Well, the preliminary doesn't have a date or a final price. The statutory one does. So an order, okay. So an order is basically saying, a final order is just saying, hey, this is our decision. It's appealable, but it's our decision. FINRA or the SEC can do that. Okay, what's FINRA? FINRA is not a government. Remember that. FINRA is not the government. It's an SRO or a DEA, not that DEA. It's a designated examining authority or a self-regulatory organization. It's a member and it regulates broker-dealers, agents, and exchanges. That's it. It doesn't do IAs. It doesn't do IARs. And surprisingly, it doesn't do securities. So what's a firm quote? A firm quote is when you make an offer. You go, I'll buy your shares at 40 or I'll sell the shares at 40. It's a firm quote and you have to honor it. And the person on the other side can take that to the bank. I mean, you can't sit on it for two hours. But if I say, listen, I'll buy your shares at 40, I have to honor it. Or if I say I'll sell shares to a 38, I have to honor it. That's a firm quote. FIFO, first in, first out. That's 
So when you buy shares and sell them, right? So if you buy shares at different prices, like at 30, 35, and 40, and then you go to sell some of it, not all of it, if you sell all of it, it's easy. You just figure the numbers out. But if you do, if you buy 135, 140, 145, and then later you sell 100 shares, which ones do you choose? Well, you can choose, you can select which shares you want. Or if you don't mention a method, they do first in, first out, which means the first shares you bought, the ones at 35, are the ones you sold. And that's what the IRS requires. If you don't mention a method, they automatically go to FIFO, which kind of screws you over. Because you know, remember, the, whatever the IRS does, it's to make money off of you, to tax you the most amount possible. So first in, first out means the first shares you bought, it'd be the first ones you sell. And again, if you do a regular account and you don't mention a method, they're going to do FIFO, which is going to give you the biggest tax work. Since I'm here, let's talk about LIFO. LIFO is for non-qualified retirement accounts. So what happens is the last money in is the first out, which is better for you sometimes, but not in this case. If I put 20 grand into an into a annuity, a non-qualified annuity, and it grows to 100, so I have 20 grand here, it grows to 100. If I start taking it out, they're going to start here, the last money, the growth, and it's going to work its way back. So if I put in 20 and it grows to 100, the first 80,000 comes out under LIFO would be taxable, and then the last 20 is going to be not taxable. So LIFO takes the last money and goes first and comes out first, last in, first out. Fiscal policy, that's basically the tax and spending policy set by the government. Okay, fiscal year, I said that I did a video on this, popular or not. There's two types of years, calendar year, which is January 1st to December 31st. That's our normal year. Then we have fiscal year. A fiscal year is any 12-month period. You can do October to, to September 30th. You can do July 1st to June 30th. You can do anything you want. A fiscal year doesn't have to be set. You set it. And the reason some companies set different ones is because they have different peak seasons or they have varying like demand levels for their stuff. So they want to take advantage of that whatever reason. So a fiscal year can be anything other than the normal calendar year. But it is 12 months. What's a fixed annuity? A fixed annuity is not a security. Okay, we we should know what an annuity is. But in a fixed annuity, is you put money in. They're usually non-qualified. You put money in. It grows tax deferred at a fixed rate in the accumulation phase. And then once you get to the number that you want or the age, say you're 59 and a half, you can either withdraw it or take it out as a, an annuity where they pay you for life. There's different choices which you can you should know about or go watch on it. Um, You pay out for life. But here's the thing with a fixed annuity. Once the payment set, it never changes. So if you set it out and you're going to get 500 a month, that's what you're getting forever. And where's the problem with that? You have inflation risk, okay? So if you get the same amount of money, Every month, for you know, at first it's great. Oh, I got five hundred dollars, and then like ten years, like wow, that doesn't even get into the movies. Okay, so you have purchase of power and inflation risk with a fixed annuity. You don't have that with a variable. A variable is very similar to a fixed, except for when a fixed is 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 invested in a general account, so you know what you're getting every month, and it's not changing. The variable annuity is invested in a separate account or a sub account and it's invested in the market so when you put money in it grows at a variable rate during the accumulation phase based on the return of your portfolio and then when you get paid out you can take the lump sum all good and remember annuities when you take them out they're going to come out lifo because they're non-qualified and um they don't step up cost basis which i've talked about before now on the annuity side when you annuitize and get paid for life again different choices um your payout will change every month depending on how well your portfolio in the sub account does versus air. Okay. Air is the is like an assumed interest rate that is just a benchmark. Okay. So that benchmark is here. Say it's 5%. If you do better than that, your payment goes up. 
If you do worse than that, your payment goes down. So you will your payments will go up and down along with the market. So while you don't have inflation risk, you do have market risk with a variable annuity. And that's, of course, that's in the Vs, but kind of going together, FV, whatever. Okay, so what's a fixed asset? That's like a physical property. That's like equipment, um, buildings, land. Those are long-term assets. They're not in the current assets. Fixed assets, boom, covered. Okay. Okay, so you know what a yield curve is, right? So we got the yield curve. Do it real quick, quick and dirty, right? That's my favorite term. Boom. So we, we have different types of there. This is a positive yield curve, right? Okay. That means the shorter term, shorter term interest, shorter terms have lower yields, longer ter terms have higher. And then what happens is when the Federal Reserve starts raising rates, the short-term rates go up. And now we have a flat yield curve. That's flat, which means short and long are the same. And then what we have now is an inverted. Okay. This is inverted. I covered all three. That means the Fed's raising rates. And then the short-term rates are higher than the long-term rates, which is not normal. That's an inverted curve. And then when the Fed starts lowering, we go back to flat, where they're the same. Then we go to positive again. And then we're back to normal. There we go. That's a yield curve in 30 seconds. What's a flow-through? Okay, so flow-through is a flow-through is like, um, well, there's two ways to do it. One on mutual funds, it's called the conduit theory, where the 90% of the money they make gets passed through to the investors, 90%. It's not truly a flow-through, but it's a conduit. But a flow-through is like a limited partnership, an LLC, a DPP, S-Corp. Every, every dime they make, other than expenses, gets passed through to the investors, okay? So instead of the corporation, almost like, see if I can make a stupid crude drawing of this, let's see. Here we go. There's the corporation. It's an evil-looking, mean investor, okay? So any money that comes in, okay, so let's do this. So any money that comes in, what's going to happen is it go, they earn money into the corporation and it flows right through to the investor. Now, what happens is when it gets in here, they take out the expenses, right? Boom. And then all of it flows right through the investor. So in reality, the pass-through, the LLC, the limited partnership, the S-Corp, actually at the end of the year has no money, okay? At the end of the year, they have a big old Zippo. That should help a little bit. That's a little idea of how it works, okay? Good. I like my little mean guy, okay? Okay, um, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, they're all, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, those are all um, government-sponsored entities. They're not backed by the government, supposedly, okay? Um, foreign currency, that's just what money from another country. We know that, okay? And we, so anytime you invest outside the country, anytime you invest outside the country, you have currency or exchange risk, right? So if you buy something from Switzerland or in or and that pays in Krona, I guess what they use or whatever it is, and you already London, then they pay pounds and Germany, they pay euros. Anytime you invest in there and you're getting paid that, you're worried that the, the valuations of the currencies will go up or down and you'll lose money depending on what you're doing. Like you don't it kind of like you're investing over there. You don't want their currency to drop because then it doesn't go back as much. Okay. Um, form D is for Reg D. Just remember that. So if you see the word Form D, it's about a Regulation D private placement on the federal level. What's a future and a forward? Okay. So futures and forwards. Okay. So futures and forwards are they're like they're not options, but they're like contracts. So let's say I'm a farmer. I look like a farmer, right? I I, can, I can't do the work. My hands are too fucking soft. Um, say I'm a farmer and I have all this wheat I want to sell, but it's January and it's not pulled yet. I'm not pulling it out till May. Well, I'm worried that in May, the prices will drop. And I go, look, I can sell this at 50 cents right now, 50 cents a bushel, but I'm worried in May, everyone else will be selling their wheat too. And it's only going to be 30 cents. So what I'll do is I'll actually sell the wheat now. I'll say, I'm going to sell the wheat to you now and I'm going to deliver in May. That's a future or a forward. Okay. So a if a farmer 
sell sells a future. They're locking in a sales price now and they'll deliver in the future. They don't normally deliver, but they usually just offset it and buy it back. But so let's do it, baby. So let's say I have over here, I have wheat. And right now in Jan, is it is January still? I mean, I post this on fucking March because it's going to take forever. See, in January, I can sell the wheat for 50 cents right now. Okay. Can sell it for 50 cents, but I know I'm not pulling, I'm not harvesting it till May. And I'm worried that it'll be lower. So I'm going to sell however. Now, remember, I'm going to sell however, however many I want. Okay. So if I have, say, I have 20,000 bushels of wheat. And let's say each contract is worth 5,000, which is, I think, what they are. Each contract of future is worth 5,000 bushels of wheat. So I'm going to sell four bushels, four contracts, four uh, May 50 futures, okay? May 50 cents, okay? Now, that's covering my 20,000, so I'm hedged. So what happens is, if come May, the wheat is at like 25 cents, what's going to happen is, I go, oh, where I still get to sell it at 50 cents, so I'm happy. I normally won't do that. I could. I could just deliver the wheat. But remember, if you do it through future, you might have to deliver it to a, a warehouse that's like 500 miles away or more because you have to send it to a warehouse to deliver. So instead, what you'll do is you'll just buy the future back for 25 cents, okay? So you'll make 25 cents times 5,000, right? Because that's how many in the contract and then times four contracts, okay? Whatever that is. So what that's, that's 1250 times four, you're going to do 25 cents. This is how much you'll make. You're going to do 25 cents times 5,000 times four. That's going to give you five grand. So that means, okay, how stupid am I? That's $5,000, okay? You'll make profit of five grand by, by by offsetting or buying back the future. And then you'll sell the wheat. Instead of selling it at 50 cents, you'll sell it at 25. So you make 5,000 less. Right, five thousand less than you would have, but it's offset because look, so you sell the wheat. You could have sold the wheat twenty thousand bushels at fifty cents. You made ten grand, but here you're only going to make five grand, but you made five grand. So you sell it for five grand, you make five grand less, but you made five grand on the future, and then you're good. So that's what a future is. So a future is that on an exchange, it's very liquid. You can buy it back. It's awesome. A forward is different. It's the same idea, okay, but. But what happens is, is that it's a contract between two people. So you really can't get out of it. So if I sell you the wheat through a forward, I have to deliver the wheat to you or whatever it is. It's usually a one-on-one -on -one thing. And if I want out of it, I have to get permission from the other side because there's a contract between me and you. That's what forwards are. Now, let's say I think wheat's going up. I'll buy futures. So if I'm a user and I go, ooh, wheat's 50 cents, but I'm afraid when I need it in May, it's going to be 75 cents. I'll buy a 50 cent future. So if it goes up, I can make that money to offset what extra I spend. So remember, producers like farmers, drillers, lumber yards, not lumber yards, um, tree cutters, lumberjacks, I guess it would be. Okay. People who sell commodities are worried it's going to drop. They're producers, so they will sell futures. Now, if I'm a if I'm a user like Sabaros and I gotta buy a fucking shitload of wheat to build if I, I don't know if they use wheat in their pizza, who the hell knows? It's probably plastic. Um, they're worried the price will go up, so they're going to buy buy their Sbarro's. I love you, pizza. I'm not saying you have plastic in them. Just throwing it out there. Don't sue me. Um, that's right. Nobody's going to watch this, so we're good. Um, then Sabar So what happens is Sbarro's would buy the 50-cent futures. So this way, if the wheat goes up to 75, they'll, they can just make the money. So users buy futures to, to hedge. Producers sell futures 
to hedge. And now you could also be a speculator. You just, oh, I think wheat's going up. I'm going to buy futures. Or you think, I think wheat's going down. I'm going to sell futures. So remember that they're contracts, okay? Futures are very liquid. They trade on an exchange. They're very standardized and they're a derivative. Forwards are none of that. They're not, they are a derivative. They're not on an exchange. They're not standardized. You can have a 2200 bushel contract, whatever you want. And you can make it for as long as you want. You don't have to be three months. You can say, I want it for two weeks or a week or three days, whatever it is. That's the difference between futures and forwards, okay? Forward pricing. So when you buy a mutual fund at 10 in the morning, you don't know what the price is. You find out at 4 p.m. Or really, you find out the next morning. But it's priced at the end of the day. So that's what forward pricing is. So you can buy it, but you have no idea what you're getting until the, until the market closes and they price it, which is usually you'll find out in the morning. So forward mutual funds trade on forward pricing. ETFs close end funds and ETNs trade in the market. So you know right away what your price is going to be. Okay. Fraud and unethical. So fraud is like criminal, like lying, okay? Basically, you're misrepresenting, omitting material facts, lying, deceiving, manipulating, all that shit, and they're unlawful. That's criminal. Unethical is like, oh, I made a mistake. Maybe I churned. Maybe I made an unsuitable recommendation, but I didn't know, or something like that. Like, maybe you did something that's, eh, maybe not so good. Like, not illegal per se, per se, but... um but kind of just like not good, okay? You can't go to jail. If you see the word unintentional um, unintentional or unethical, there's another word, I can't think of it. That means not criminal, it's unethical, okay? If you see intentional, willful, misrepresentation, fraud, it always can be criminal and you do, jail time is on the table for that. Okay, I think we talked about this. Front end load is for an A shares, you pay when you go in. Back-end load is CDSC. You pay when you leave, and it goes down every year. And Class C is not a no-sales search, not a no-load. And their expense ratio is very high because you're paying a high 12B1 fee. Full power of attorney versus limited power of attorney. Full power of attorney, full trading authorization, pretty much the same thing, okay? So full power of attorney means, let's start with the whole power of attorney. You have power of attorney. You have the right to, you have the ability to make decisions you have discretion to make decisions to buy and sell securities on behalf of your client without getting permission first. Okay. If it's limited, that's all you can do. If it's full, okay. If it's full, then we have, um, if it's full, then you have the right to make this, you can do make decisions on, on, on securities. Plus you can write, pay bills. You can withdraw money, pay your fee, all that stuff. You can actually withdraw the money for the benefit of the client. That's full power of attorney. And full power of attorney actually is considered custody. Okay, fundamental analysis. What's fundamental analysis? Fundamental, ana oh my God, I can't say it. Fundamental analysis is actually looking at the, uh, at, I almost said it, at the balance sheet, income statements, earnings per share, PE ratio, okay? Though you're looking at the debt to equity ratio. You're looking at all that stuff. You're looking at the financial condition of the company, okay? You're looking at an actual company. As opposed to technical, you don't give a shit about the name. All you care about is the trends. You see support, resistance. You see da 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 uh, daily moving averages. You see momentum on, on trading momentum. You see like head and shoulders or, or saucers or patterns. That's what you're looking for, trends, patterns, stuff like that. Overbought, oversold. You're, because it's about the trading and the price movements. So let's like, think about this way. Fundamental is about the company. And the technical is about the price movements of the stock and looking for patterns. And we're on to the G's, baby, the G's. Okay, so what's a general obligation bond? Well, if I'm going to talk about that, I probably have to talk about a revenue bond also, right? So a GO bond is a general obligation. It's issued by a city, a state, a town, whatever it is. 
and it's to pay for shit that's free to use. So like, a, uh, not a hospital, a high school, a library, a community center, city hall, shit like that. It's for projects, a field maybe. It's a project for that's free to use, which means it's not generating revenue, which means they have to use taxes to pay for it, okay? So that means they're going to use what they call ad valorem taxes. So a general obligation bond is a bond that is non-self-supporting, issued for stuff that is free to use, and it uses ad valorem or property taxes. Since it uses taxes, it probably needs a voter approval. Since I'm here, I might as well talk about revenue bonds. Revenue bonds are literally the same thing, but they're for stuff that costs money to use, like subways, buses, bridges, tunnels, hospitals, airports, all toll roads, highways that have tolls. All of them cost money. So what they do is they issue the bond and then they and they, they build the project and the revenues from the project pay the interest. What both of these bonds have in common is that most of the time the interest, not the capital gains, the interest is tax-free from federal taxes. You might have to pay state taxes if you buy it from a state you're not in, because why would you help out another state? But if you pay, if you buy a bond, muni bond, whether it's a geo or a revenue in your own state, you probably don't have to pay any federal taxes. There are instances where they are, but let's not talk about it yet. And but the capital gains will always be the capital gains is always taxable. Okay, GDP, baby, GDP. So maybe out of order, but uh, gross domestic product and then GNP. We'll talk about both. Gross domestic product is how we measure the economy. Is it getting better? So if the GDP is going up, that's we're in an expanding cycle. If it's going down, we're in a contracting cycle. So GDP is basically the market value of all the goods and services produced by U.S. companies. So GDP puts you also factor into it, filter, factor, whatever it is, that it also has to be produced in the U.S. So if you have a company that, a U.S. company that produces a lot of stuff in the U.S., the GDP counts all of their all of their services. But like an Apple or maybe a Microsoft or something like that, maybe even Tesla, anything they issue, anything they make outside the country, like Apple uses a lot of China, Hong Kong stuff, they that stuff wouldn't count toward the GDP, but it would count toward GNP. So GDP is what the market value of goods and services that the U.S. companies produce, and it's made in the U.S. GNP, gross national product, is the market value of the goods and services by U.S. companies produced both here and outside the country. So if you see the word partnership, just alone the word partnership, not limited partner, just the word partnership, it means a general partnership, which means these are general partners they all are partners. They all have liability beyond just what they put in, but they can all run the company. That's what a partnership is. So a partnership is a group. It can even be verbal, like you and me get in a partnership. But it's a partnership, um, and it's not a limited partnership. A limited partnership has a limited partner and a general partner. The limited can't be involved in running it and has limited liability. The general partner is actually absolutely involved in it. So if we have just a regular partnership or general partnership, that means a partnership, they're the same, one and the same, and the partners run it, and they have liability beyond just what they put in. I think we talked about these good till cancel, good till cancel orders versus GTC orders. So a good till cancel order means what it says it is, because we're morons, we have to spell shit out. Good till cancel means you put the order in, and it's good until I cancel it, which means it goes beyond today, tomorrow, it can go. They Every like May and October, they just renew them to make sure they're good. But good till cancel orders, most orders are not. They go beyond today. Okay, you can place it as a good till cancel and you'll leave it in there for two months or three months or whatever it is. As opposed to a day order, which means you place the order and it expires at 4 p.m. You don't have to call and cancel it. A GTC, you have to cancel it. 
until unless it's unrenewed. But you have to cancel it. A day order, it ends at 4 p.m. You just put it in, and at the end of the day, you don't do anything, it expires. What's goodwill? Goodwill is the intangible part of a value of a company's business, okay? So basically, um, it's not part of... If you're trying to figure out book value, right? Because book value, I think we talked about, was the tangible stuff, right? As far as the value of the company, you would use intangible goodwill, which is intangible, like their reputation. The the um, what do they call it? The 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 syrup for Coke. Your name value, like Nike's name, or or the value of the name or your reputation is part of your shit, as part of your worth, but it's not part of book value because book value is basically if we sell the company for the the trucks the buildings, the desks, everything they have, that's book value. Tangible, touchable stuff. Intangible means it's kind of like, it's kind of reputation. It's not a hard thing. Okay. What's a grantor? So a grantor is, or a settler, a grantor, a settler is a person who sets up a trust. Now they set it up, they put the money in, they hire, they get the trustee, they pick the beneficiaries and then they're out of it. Okay. They're not, I mean, you can be the grantor, the trustee and the beneficiary. You can do that. But if you're just a grantor, you drop the money in, and then you, if you make it irrevocable, you're done. You have nothing to do with that anymore other than the trustee, right? The trustee, if unless you're the trustee. So the grantor puts it in. Once it's in there, the trust, if it's irrevocable, we don't care about the trust, about the grantor at all anymore. Then We say, thank you, move on. If it's irrevocable, then the grantor is involved because at any point they can bring it back, and it does counter their estate. So an irrevocable trust, the grantor has nothing to do with it once it's in. And a revocable trust, well, then it's still part of their estate if they die and stuff like that. Gross income is basically all the money we get, okay? Basically, if you're in a company or a person, gross income is all the money you get from all sources. Before taxes, that's the top line thing. Gross margin is like your profits, okay? Gross margin is basically like your operating profit, right? So basically saying, I haven't paid interest or taxes yet. So if I make a million dollars and it costs me 200000 to do it, I made 800 grand. That's gross margin. Again, gross revenue, very much same thing as gross income, gross revenues, how much we earn from our business operations. A growth fund, growth fund, not gross, growth fund is a fund, it's a mutual fund that basically invests in growth stocks. So that's a question. They're basically, it's going to be, um, what are growth stocks? Growth stocks are like they're expanding, they're tech stocks, they have high PEs, low dividends, they're more about capital appreciation than anything else. And that's what a growth stock is. Same thing with growth style investing is you're basically investing in growth stocks. Guaranteed security. So you know that you or I as reps can't guarantee anything, but a firm can. So like a um, basically a guarantee, so you can have like a muni bond that's guaranteed to principal interest and dividends, not by, and not to capital gains, but not by us. It's like a third party guaranteeing that they're going to pay interest, dividends, and print the principal back. That's not, it's not like you're guaranteeing a profit. You're just guaranteeing that we're going to pay the principal, the interest, and the dividends. Now, remember, it's only as good as the company is, right? If it's a shitty ass company, that guarantee doesn't mean anything. But if it's a strong company, then you put your, you back that up. Okay. What's a guardian? A guardian is someone who's appointed by the court to look over an account and a covert account, whether it's a minor or mentally incapacitated or whatever. It's like, I almost think, Think about the whole Britney Spears thing, that conservatorship. Her dad, for whatever reason, was the guardian, and his he had a fiduciary responsibility. So if he did shit wrong, he can actually get in trouble. That's the thing. If you have a fiduciary responsibility and you do shit wrong, you can absolutely get in trouble. That's the G's, baby. Not very much. Okay, these letters are coming hard and fast. What are we up to now? 
H, give me an H. Okay, H. So let's start with this one. Okay, so what's a head and shoulders platform? Okay, so, so what's a head and shoulders? Head and shoulders pattern is, looks like this. Like we go up, we go down, we go up more, we go down, we go up again, and we go down. So the whole point of this, a head and shoulders, it, I mean, it's weak, but it looks like here's a shoulder, shoulder, head. This is the head and shoulders top, which means that, Every time I say that, I think of something else. But head and shoulders top, that usually means it's bearish or it's a reversal of an uptrend. This is the uptrend. This is the reversal. This thing here is like a shakeout. What happens is all the people who shorted it up here are buying it to cover this short, but it's not real, so it's going down. We call this like a dead cat bounce. Because, hell, you throw a cat out of a building, it bounces once before it does. I'll probably get demonetized for doing that joke. Okay. Now. We got that. That's head and shoulders. That's a head and shoulders top. Head and shoulders bottom would be this. It's even worse. But it's a, it's a, so it's a, a head and shoulders bottom. It's a downtrend. Here's a reverse. So we think it's going to be bullish or a reversal of a downtrend. What does hedge mean? Okay. So like hedge funds, all that stuff. Hedge means to kind of reduce your risk. Okay. That's what you're trying to do is reduce your risk. And I'm just going to throw it in here. Hedge funds are really made that what they do is everyone goes, oh, I don't get, they don't risk, they, they take risky shit. Yes, but they also hedge it. Like they'll buy shit and buy options or they'll buy shit and buy some other product that is opposite, it's non-correlated to hedge their positions. So hedge funds, so a hedge is, is basically an act to reduce a risk. A hedge fund is a pooled investment of money for usually high net worth or accredited people um, and they're they're not unregistered with the SEC. I mean, at some point they have to register, but for the most part they're unregistered. That you don't you don't have to. Um, yeah, they're not registered. I'm going to leave it at that. Um, and what they do is they buy they buy securities, they buy more risky, more alternative securities, and they will also use other things to offset that risk. They don't have to. They can go all in, balls in, and try to do something. But a lot of times they'll take off some of it, some of the risk with some sort of hedge. So a hedge is reducing your risk. Okay. Um, a hedge clause is usually not allowed, usually meaning all the time, not allowed in a contract because it's basically saying you can't blame me for doing something. So it's almost like a hedge clause tries to make it seem like, oh, you can't blame me if this happens. No, that's not true. Okay. Um, as an investment advisor, if you put a hedge clause in your contract, it could be a violation. And I say could, it will be a violation because you're saying, hey, don't blame me for shit going wrong. You can't do that. Okay, high net worth just means you're rich. I mean, some people try to say that the same as qualified, which is the million under management or two point new net worth. But I just say that's a qualified investor, which means that those people you can charge performance-based fees to. But that's more qualified. High yield bond. A high yield bond is a bond that has an interest rate that's higher. Obviously, it's it's because it's riskier. Usually it means it's below. I think we talked about it before in one, in one of the earlier video that if it's below triple B, right? So triple B is the lowest investment grade. Anything below triple B, 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 C, 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 all that, those are all high yield or speculative or junk, if you want to say that. Okay, so what's a holding company, okay? So a holding company is a company that owns, an, like a bank holding company. Everyone goes, oh, they're exempt. No, I want you to think of this. Like a bank holding company is literally a corporation that owns a bank. There's two big ones. Financial services holding company and a bank holding company. A bank holding company is literally just a corporation that owns a bank. But a financial services holding company is a corporation that owns a bank and a broker dealer, investment advisors. They can hold other things. There's different requirements for that. But they're but on on them on their own. They are not exempt. 
Holding companies are not exempt. They're just corporations. So if I'm a bank holding company, I own a bank. The bank is exempt from registration, but I'm not. If you hold something, you're the owner. Own, long, own, hold, all mean the same thing. Short, sell, write, kind of mean the same thing. What's a holding period? Usually that's when you have restricted shares. You have to hold it for a certain amount of period. A lot of times it's six months. It doesn't, it's not every time, but holding periods, are like they make you hold it. Like if you do a Reg D, you have to hold it for six months fully paid. If you buy shares outside the country under a Reg S, you have to hold it for a year fully paid. There are exemptions to that, but that's pretty much what a holding period is. Another version of holding period is how long you held the stock for, right? So if you buy stock today, and you hold it for a year or less, it's a short-term holding period. And if you hold it for over 12 months, then it's a long-term holding period. So that's a so holding period is for one thing, how long you hold it for as far as meeting restricted. But another one is if you've held it for more than a year, it's a long-term holding period, which means long-term capital gains rate. Or if it's a year or less, then it's a holding period of short-term, which means it's in a short-term capital gain, which is the same as ordinary income. Home state, that's like where your principal, I always say that home state rules, baby. So if you're an IA or a broker dealer in a state, you you that wherever your principal office is, wherever your principal place of business is, that's your home state. And that's whose financial stuff you have to follow. As long as they don't, they're not higher than the SEC, if you're regulated by the SEC. But if you're a state advisor and you're in five states, you have, even if the other five states have higher financial requirements, you just follow your home state and they all they're okay with it. Home state is where your principal place of business is. What's hypothecation? Hypothecation. Okay. Hypothecation. I was thinking of that anticipation catch-up thing. Hypothecation is when you open a margin account and the, and what happens is you fill out the credit the credit agreement you get, um, the margin agreement, you want to call it. Then the hypothecation agreement is saying, I'm allowing you to take my shares and use as as, as Use them as collateral to lend me the money, right? So a margin account, you're buying shares on margin. You're borrowing money to buy shares. So the broker-dealer will take 140% of your debit balance, the money you're borrowing, in shares. So if you buy $10,000 worth of stock, you're going to put down five grand, you're going to borrow five grand. So that means you bought 10000 in stock. The broker-dealer will take 7000 which is 140% of your debit balance, in shares and hypothecate them to the bank. And then the bank will lend them the five grand so they can lend you. So hypothecation is basically putting your shares up as collateral for the loan, kind of like a mortgage.